A Fork on the Road is brought to you by GoDaddy. Well, they have everything you need to put your business online, find new customers, and kick butt online. They started by registering... says kick ass online. I don't want to say ass. But that's what GoDaddy wants you to say. No, I don't want to say GoDaddy's all that. about ass. Have you not seen Danica Patrick? She's fabulous. She is. Right, you can get you started by registering a domain name and creating your website with GoDaddy's easy-to-use website builder. Already have a site? Keep it running fast with GoDaddy web hosting. It's go time. Visit, Visit GoDaddy.com. Enter promo code FORK32 and save 32% on your new purchases. Some limitations apply. Always. With See everything. website for details and then get ass kicking online. Get butt kicking with GoDaddy. Whatever. I think wrestling. Uh, and, and we're going to call wrestling a sport. Yes. Wrestling is a sport. Okay. Absolutely. Because you have to be in fantastic shape for it, right? Yes. It requires so much out of your body. If you didn't call it a sport, you, you would be... You'd kick my ass. You, Yeah. <laughs> frankly. And I love you. And yet I would still yeah. I lovingly kick your ass. Well, I think it, in, in some ways, it is the ultimate expression of our country. The, the, the over-the-top braggadocio and bravado. The loud, amped-up antics the the bone crushing the 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 drama and the serial nature of it is kind of very american in a certain way as a matter of fact and rock Does that makes sense yes very much rock you can uh you can correct me if i get anything wrong here professional wrestling as a spectacle people paying to see it yeah there were stories of it happening in europe in the 1800s however it really was born here in the United States. With the advent of TV. It, uh, no, no, no. First, it was in carnivals. Rock? It was in carnivals first. And do you know why people bought televisions in the United States of America? To see was- Milton Berle's penis. No. <laughs> really? Okay. Come on. I think maybe the three of you could finish this show. He was like a coiled cobra. Just, just waiting, hand me my money. I'm on my way out. with that. He had that in his mind. Rock, please go back to what you were saying. Why, thank you very much. <laughs> Could we muzzle him for a moment? The host? I'm not sure I'm at that's least right. partially right on that. Well, let me tell you what I do. A few months ago, this is typical. I had another phone call from another host of another radio show mm-hmm. slash podcast. He's not saying It's better. a live. No, not of course not. Because <laughs> he was not my hero. I had not heard of him. You are one of my heroes. And of course, my ultimate hero is me. Right. So you're in good company. I'm like a Fiat 500. You are, you're the Rolls Royce. I'm a Fiat 500. (laughs) The four-seater, not the two-seater. Ah, funny. All right. But the thing about (laughs) professional wrestling is it started in the carnival. The carnival traveled from town to town. When people see a wrestling show now, they'll go, you know, they'll go to an independent wrestling show that I'm doing at an armory or a boys and girls club. Uh Much smaller venues than Rock has ever worked in. And and they'll say, well, real wrestling is like this, and real wrestling is like that. No, 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 no. This is real wrestling. Wrestling started in a tent. The audiences were 50, 60 people. They sat on makeshift uh, uh, little risers. They watched these guys who came into town, and those guys would wrestle. A local kid would be called up for maybe the second or third match, and he would take on, you know, the Dutchman. And the Dutchman, whose last name was usually like Malloy or O'Brien, <laughs> w- would then twist the local kid into knots, throw him out of the ring, and the crowd would hate him. There would be maybe four or five matches. What you see now, the televised, the big show, Vince McMahon's show, uh-huh. that is a huge out 
outgrowth of what professional wrestling started as. It started as a small spectacle with a with an intimate audience, and you were there. The like, like the vaudeville of ass kicking. Exactly. Exactly. I'm going to use that from now on. That's yours. The blood, the sweat, the teeth, everything flew out of the ring and hit you. Right. You were part of it. And that is professional. And this is in a day when there was no television, right? This is, you had radio. So that kind of visceral entertainment really uh, made a print on people. No, Rock? Yes? Yes, it made an imprint on people. And the reason that people bought televisions was to see gorgeous George wrestle. Yes. That is absolutely true. The On the Paps Blue, who, who, what was the big show? I don't know. I wasn't born then. <laughs> I studied some history, I know. I knew his son. I wrestled with his Not son. Not quite gorgeous. as handsome, oh, George? Right. Yeah, George, George Wagner Jr., Anyway, this what I was going to tell you a moment ago mm-hmm. is how a few months ago I'm going to do another show. Right. I send an email to the host because it's the first time I'm going to do his live two-hour show. And, of course, I'm the only guest. So today you decided to bring someone else in. <laughs> I did not know that ahead of time, but that's okay because we need to demonstrate some wrestling moves. I have someone here who can Ooh, uh, be oh the, the victim. So I said to this host in an email, I said, normally when you have Rock Riddle doing a live two-hour show – This is what the host does. The host says, ladies and gentlemen, I would like Mr. Riddle to introduce himself. Then the host does not say another word. We have a brilliant two-hour show. He he thought, he thought I was sincere. He sent an email back. He says, well, I I can certainly understand that, and and I know how good you are. But as the host of the show, don't you think I should ask (laughs) at least a couple of questions? Oh, that's hilarious. (laughs) I know you have another question for me. However, the question I would have for myself would be so much better than what you're going to ask. And the people on the phone who are waiting, who've been waiting for the last two hours, they have nothing to say anyway. So I'm going to ask myself, Rock Riddle, in the professional wrestling business, what is your number one regret? Or do you have any regrets? Have you ever had a regret in those decades of amazing wrestling? And my answer, quite honestly is yes, I have one regret. No. I do. What is your one regret? My one regret is that I was not able to sit front row ringside and watch myself in the ring. <laughs> because I was my ultimate hero. I loved that man. I loved that wrestler. I loved that fantastic, tanned, amazing body, that brilliant mind, and that fantastic ability. I created my own hero. I became the person I wanted to sit at ringside and watch. And I still wake up in the morning and look in the mirror. And I like that person I see. (laughs) And even though we're kidding around a little bit here and we're going a little bit overboard, isn't that an ultimate goal for people to wake up in the morning, look in the mirror, and like the person who's looking back at them? Sure, absolutely. And so few people do. You're right. Well, let's talk about, you were wrestling in the 70s and the 80s, right? Uh, Yes, I haven't wrestled now for how long? I think it's been about uh, five weeks. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'd like to hear kind of what it started like in that era. And then John kind of, John's a little younger than you, so he kind of, and has a different, you wrestled on the East Coast primarily, correct? I wrestled all over the United States and up into Canada. Sold out major arenas all over. Having 17,000 people at uh, Chicago's International Amphitheater. Week or month after month, uh, selling out the Cow Palace all of the time, selling out the what was that with the Omni in Atlanta, all over the place. Would you so, travel, all you guys, all you wrestler guys? Would you travel together? No, all travel separately. A lot traveled separately. I had a little green 
Carmen Ghia, Volkswagen Carmen Ghia. I like to be by myself. I like to travel alone. So I usually did that. That gave me total freedom. Mm-hmm. And this show is about food, right? Would you food like and to travel. food and travel? Yes, oh, we this is fantastic. Food stories and chicks. You, I want to hear about chicks. <laughs> oh, you want to do that first? <laughs> well, I mean, oh, there no, won't be let's time do travel. Let's do else. travel and food. This is right. Why, why, why don't you just take charge and you tell me you can be like the host of the show and you can sort of guide. <laughs> what a, Ask me well, a I don't know if I could do that. Right? Oh, I think you can. I would love to hear your travel and food stories. All right. This Carmen Ghia, Volkswagen Carmen Ghia, if you open the front, that's the trunk. I had a great large orange suitcase that just barely fit in there. In there, I had a camp stove. I had a little oven. Uh, I had plates and knives and forks and that kind of thing. I also had an ice chest that I would carry with me. I would go to a town. I would stop by Oh, a supermarket, that kind of thing. I'd get whatever I wanted to get. I would get steaks. I would get spaghetti, whatever. And then I would check into a hotel, and I would cook. And it was great. In the hotel room? Of course. Especially when they had the signs up that says no cooking in the rooms. Oh. And I would cook garlic bread. Oh. And they would say, Mr. Riddle, are you cooking in there? I said, no, what is that? That smells great. <laughs> if you, you find it, tell me. I'm hungry. Wait a minute. Garlic you, bread? Don't you have to have, I mean, a certain diet for to keep that Back physique? then, carbs were not bad for you. <laughs> this is only recently that they discovered carbs were bad. They did not know That's that. That's an excellent question, by the way. Thank you. I wrestled between seven and ten times per week. Mm-hmm. Week after week after week. Eat whatever you want. Right. You absolutely can eat whatever you want because you're going to burn it and you need to to take in a lot of, in that case, carbs. Now, of course, now that I'm not wrestling all of the time, just mm-hmm. oh, maybe once or twice a month now. Yes, what's your upcoming schedule, Rock? I don't know. It depends on when this is going to air, but just check it. <laughs> check HollywoodSuccess.com. That's right. For success in Hollywood, it's HollywoodSuccess.com, and maybe you'll see some links and you'll be able to find me. It's Rock Riddle. How many Rock Riddles are there? There's only one! He's a riddle. It's so funny because, uh, now, Rock, your story, too, because I, I, you know, I've done my research. I've, I've, I study my vets. It's a very important thing in professional wrestling. You study your in veterans. any career. You want to know who yeah. came before you. And, and you, you know, you want to show the proper respect. You want to know uh, enough of their background. Uh, you know, you were a pretty thin kid. You were a pretty light kid. And you worked yourself big. You worked yourself into a big man. Right. My problem was never getting too fat, getting right. too big. Right. I weighed 100. When I wrestled in high school, I wrestled on 135 pound, 136 pound weight class. I weighed about 130 pounds. I worked my way up to 145 pounds. And people, I grew up in North Carolina. So, of course, with a small town thinking in a small town, they would, when they knew that I decided at the age of 16 I was going to become a professional wrestler, they said, Boy, your bone structure's too small. You'd have to gain 100 pounds. Why don't you just settle down and get yourself a job like your daddy? He's been working there in the drugstore since he's 14. He's going to have that house paid for it another eight years. You know, I don't know why anybody ever want to leave this county. You got everything you want right here. That's true. If I wanted to grow tobacco or make hosiery at Burlington Mills. I could not wait to get away from that small town thinking, even now. I bet you Does it you're... sound as though I'm making fun of them? No. No. <laughs> no, but I bet, I bet you get, back in the day you had your hands full of hosiery. Uh-huh. <laughs> Five years after. Okay, we're going back to the age of 16. Five years later. So you're 21 at, or you're 16? 
16 okay. plus 5 is how much? 21. <laughs> Thank you. Very good. <laughs> Can you do it without counting on your hands? No. Using your fingers? Okay. <laughs> five years later, I was back in my old hometown, or near my hometown, this time at a National Guard armory, and we mm. sold it out. Yeah. The main event, Rock Riddle versus... George Becker. George Becker was former world champion. He was a deity in the South. The mm-hmm. joke was, you don't know who George Becker is? What's the matter with you, boy? You don't go to church on Sunday? <laughs> I beat him. I caused a riot. I was 236 pounds of twisted steel and sex appeal and made, of course, the wow. front page of the paper. You put they- on 100 pounds? 100 pounds, 236 pounds, 18 and a half inch arm, natural. Woo-hoo. Oh, never, you never did the li- better living through chemistry. No, I have nothing <laughs> against doing that. But I don't I either. I did not. You don't either? And, Why? Uh, look, isn't it are, cheating? We're athletes. We're in a business where size not only raises your profile, but it raises your income. And same I'm thing in baseball. Those, it's cheating. I'm one of the yes, but they have a league. We don't have a league. We're all independent contractors. Everybody in pro wrestling has makes his own choices. And I'm one of those people. Do what you choose to do, as long as it doesn't directly hurt other people. Do what you choose to do. Okay. All right, but doesn't if someone's cheating, doesn't that hurt you if he beats you and he really shouldn't? There are some guys who are dangerous with how strong they are. This is true. You got your Brock Lesners. You got your you know. Your big monsters, Chris Masters at one point was a gigantic man. These are all WWE guys. Mm-hmm. Um, but these guys, if you manipulate around them enough, you can keep them from hurting you. It's very important uh-huh. to so always, frantic. you're responsible for your own survival in pro wrestling. Your book sounds like a book I would never think to pick up because it sounds like a lifetime movie to me. Yet when I was reading it, I was laughing my ass off. There are some really touching moments. And I had no idea that you guys were going through all of this, this, this family upheaval. I mean, you know, it never came through at parties or when you were hanging out with your friends. It must have been just a big burden to bear. Oh, you know, I, I, I just could not. You, you know, we're really close. Like, just for the listeners out there, Mark, Yenny, and I are naked right now. We are close. <laughs> but and she's yet... on her phone in the other room because she's got a weird thing about that. But whatever. <laughs> yes, we all are naked. <laughs> and I, and yet, yes, you didn't know. And the, my reasoning is not that I'm some martyr. It's just that I didn't want to be a downer. And when you go through trying to create a family and it not working biologically and it not working by adoption and it just not working the way it did not work for us for n- nine years, I, I just I just kept it inside. And then I thought, well, if I start telling people now, it's just so big that I just couldn't. So, yes, suddenly we called everybody. I think we sent an email because why the book is called Instant Mom is because after almost a decade of trying, Ian and I, signed up with American Foster Care. We got fingerprinted, background checked, and our house got cleared, and we got a call. And our daughter was almost three years old. They said, uh, there's a little girl. And I said, yes, right away into the phone, because so many things had fallen through. And they said, no, I have to tell you, I have to read you her profile. I was like, yes, we're saying yes. 
oh, my God, yes, Ian was in the shower, as usual, where all the good news comes. I write about this story in the book. <laughs> when Tom Hanks called me and said, Rita and I are going to make your screenplay into a movie and all the things that happened, yes, you can play the bride. Ian was in the shower, by the way, well, when that happened. He's a very well-cleansed guy. <laughs> Or if there's a secret world in there, Mark, that I don't want to know about. I don't know what happened there. But when I when Tom Hanks was on the phone, I banged on the sh- on the door, and I went. I was like banging on the bathroom door, and I went and in, in, and then finally I opened the door and I whispered, "Tom Hanks is on the phone," and he goes, "Shut the door! I'm cold." <laughs> and that's exactly what happened when we found our daughter. So that's maybe why I called the book "Instant Mom." I'm still mad at Ian. You know, I think it's uh, it's. It's weird and ironic. We have so many friends that are now having kids or having problems having kids. You know, you spend your whole life, young life, trying not to get pregnant. Yes. You know, from college and and dating and stuff. And then suddenly, I guess, when you decide that you want to, it's, it's a challenge for a lot of people. Is that because people are waiting longer to start families? Well, what do you think that's about? If you get me started on the political rant, I believe it's genetically modified foods and preservatives and stress and drugs and just things that we didn't know that we were putting into our bodies because it's really common now. And it's not necessarily associated with age because, as I write in the book, I had some not exactly well-meaning women say not nice things to me. I refer to everybody knows these women. They're all in everyone's group. There's women who, when you see them across the room, in an eye flick, you know, ah, that's a woman friend. Me, you, Yenny, we know. Yeah. I have your back. You will tell me if I look fat in those pants. You are <laughs> yes, a good I friend. Will. <laughs> yes, I will. I will not let you out in public if you don't look good. Thank you. And then there's the other group who I refer to as the coven. There is a certain type of woman who does not have your best interests at heart, and those women said terrible things to me, including by the time I think I was about 37 when we've been trying for a really long time, and they said, shouldn't have waited. And just to be clear, I waited. I started when we were 30. So it's not necessarily related to age or anything, and and a lot of infertility is linked to guilt and stress, and it just happens. But anyway, we've lost all the male viewers. Let's go back. Let's go back to talking about boobs. Here's an interesting thing. (laughs) Women are incredibly catty. If a guy doesn't like another guy, He'll walk up to him, say, you know what, you're an asshole, here's why, ba 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 and then 20 minutes later, you've either beaten him up or you're having a beer with him. Women ap- approach that kind of animosity completely differently, and my theory is because certainly women of my age didn't play team sports, and boys play team sports, and when you're on a team, at some point, some coach teaches you to shut up Stop well, whining and play for the good of the team. And women play individual sports, and they don't. I think maybe girls that are eighteen and twenty now have a different perspective than girls that are forty. But girls that are forty, they. I, I disagree I, with that theory because I didn't play sports, and I'm totally a, a girl's girl. I have great. Uh, yeah, women I friends. could. I couldn't play sports because I had to go to Greek school, and <laughs> I, I do. I'm a girl's I girl, play but I think there's. Get out of Cuba. But you don't think there's any validity to that? I mean, there, obviously there's yeah, there exceptions. Is, there, yeah, there is a lot of, uh, of, of truth to that as well, Yenny, because my daughter now, who's eight, plays on team sports, and I see a camaraderie and a, hey, drop your BS yes. to each other already. Hmm. That's pretty cool. So it depends on the girl, number one, because some of these girls you see are a chip off the old mommy coven block. 
and they're already exhibiting behavior. And then some of the boys are odd too. So I don't know. It, it is my way. The way I was raised as a medical child Canadian is walk away, and I don't think that works anymore. I think walk away respectfully and quietly because you're Canadian. <laughs> That's right. Walk don't away. Storm and, off. No, no. They story. My mom went up to the other mom and said, your little girl is a bitch, and if you keep doing that, I'm going to slap you. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. But you're very direct. You're very direct, Yanni, and you might get away with it because you're so pretty. I'm not <laughs> sure. But it is, it is true. Again, just to remind the, the listeners, we're naked, so I know. <laughs> well, and to get back to the guy thing, this, the, again. You, and you that's, t- what, that's when we get all the guys back. Well, and you touch on all this in the book. It's, there's all this swirling stuff around uh, having babies and getting pregnant and adopting that, that as a guy I was completely clueless about and and you you get in you get into it from through the funny door I think and that makes it a book that both men and women I, regardless of the even if I didn't know you I, I would have I, I don't know if I, if I would have gotten the book but once I had the book I loved it because it was funny and it was also informative you know? Thank you. I'm trying to approach anything I write. Like the best compliment is when the you know burly football player would come up to me at the Beverly Center and say, "Like my big fat Greek wedding." It was like, "What? Wow! What? A movie with wedding in it? Like wow!" So I'm trying to do that, and not to pat myself on the back, but it's just that I don't want to exclude anybody. So I tried to write a book that wouldn't give guys the gonad shrink. There's nothing medical in it. There's nothing. Any, you know, Ian read it and vetted it fully to make sure that there wasn't anything in there that would make people go, oh, no. No, not at all. No, it, it's, you know what? It's a comedy book about a very serious process. Not serious process, but, um, I don't know, important process? Well, I think from a girl, from a girl's point of view, I like the book because, yeah, there was a whole adoption story and everything, but I like books that make me feel that make that move me in either direction i was crying in one page and laughing at the other one i couldn't put the book down i at three in the morning i remember looking at it going i can go another hour i can go another hour trying to, <laughs> trying to stop sobbing so that mark wouldn't wake up i mean i oh. like books that do that to me and i'm oh, used to you sobbing you. in bed baby <laughs> uh, um, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. At the book signings now, um, as I'm, I keep going now out because uh, these organizations will buy three to five hundred books and then bring me in. I don't charge for an appearance. Plus, I'm donating the proceeds of the book to get kids adopted worldwide. So thank you. Thank you so much for talking about the book. So when I go to these book signings, I see that people, it's first of all 50% male, and they're not talking about parenting, adoption, uh, any infertility at the at these book signings, they see the book as an overarching theme of just saying, no, I'm not accepting this, and I'm doing something else. And I hear stories from men about, you know, I got fired from my job five years ago, and then I reinvented myself, and I do desktop publishing. I, it's amazing. Well, and is there an element of embarrassment or, I don't know, shame's not the right word, but if you're trying to conceive and you can't, I'm sure there's all kinds of, like, you know, issues that come up between the couple. Is there something wrong with us? What's How come it's not happening? I, I would imagine that puts a lot of stress on a relationship. And again, we didn't see any of that. 
Oh, uh, thanks. We we just decided we, when Ian and I met at Second City, we were making sixty five dollars a show in the touring company, and we had no plan for marriage, nothing, nothing. But we immediately started pooling our money. Immediately, I don't know what it is. The way we sort of always felt like we were a team in it all, and that's why I, I write the stories of how impossibly we got my big fat Greek wedding made. That story's in there. Also, when I had dinner with the Queen of England, that story's in there because I realized. These are all things that we went through Let's talk in the about process. that a little bit. For, and for people that don't know, our husband is Ian Gomez. He's very funny. Uh, Cougar Town. Cougar Town and Drew Carey. He also was in my Big Fat Greek Wedding, but not in the John Corbett part, which must have made Ian feel bad. Big tall. No, we hate. Harry. No, I make him. No, no, I make him be in my movies, and this is how, what he does. He <laughs> will walk by my office. First, he'll say, "Who are you kissing now?" As I'm writing. <laughs> Then um, I'll give him the script, tell him, you get to come to Spain and Greece to shoot this one. He'll flip through it and go, yeah, I'll, I'll play the bar owner if I can carry a gun. <laughs> so he, we never want to play a couple. It's too gross. It's like saying, look how cute we are. Now pay $11 and watch us kiss. He was, yeah, and I don't think that ever works. I mean, when has no, that ever no, worked? But he's hilarious. He plays this really sleazy a hotel clerk in my life in ruins with more hair on his ears than he has on his back. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. The biggest compliment was when we uh, premiered the movie in Athens. All the Greeks in the audience were like, who's that Greek actor? And I, Ian, was beaming from mole to mole. <laughs> Tell us about eating with the queen. Well, that story is in the book. What happened is um, I got the incredible opportunity to have dinner with the Queen of England. And immediately, back to this thing of us being a team, I said, well, I'd like to bring my husband. And they said, well, we don't have room, and it's you at a table with Canada's premier ballerina and uh, a singer, Lorena McKinnett. And, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's the Canadians at the table. She's come, and I went, I, I don't know about this. And they said, well, Prince Philip will be sitting at another table, too. And I went, oh, all right, Ian's out. I'm in. Okay. <laughs> when did you first hear about the Big Night Mission? How did you get involved? I've known about the mission, of course, for a long, long time. But I didn't know anything about it. And about I don't know, 15 or so years ago, I came down to uh, help serve. Because uh, And you had to wait in line because so many volunteers on the holiday. And I began to learn about this place and that it really is the model for all of the other places in the country because most of the places have food and clothing and a place to sleep and that kind of thing, and usually a sermon, <laughs> which you don't get here. It's a spiritually based, uh, but, but nobody uh, tries to sell you anything. But this new building, which has been here now, we were instrumental in getting this thing built. They have computers. They have training. They get these guys sober, cleaned up, educate them, and put them back on the street. On the third floor of this place are little apartments. And a guy comes in off the street. He may begin mopping in the kitchen or whatever jobs there are to do. And they slowly move up as they progress. And finally, every year we have a graduation. Guys all dressed in the suits with jobs. They can stay here as long as they need to until they get on their feet mm -hmm. and put them back out in society. Now, it's the only place that does that. They think it's just a place where you, you can come and get fed. But it's a whole organization of giving people their lives back. 
and I'm very proud to be a part of it. And teaching them how to fish as opposed to just giving them a free meal. Right? Well, that's right, as for a biblical quotation there. <laughs> yeah, it's the, we get kids in here in their teens who've been on the street who don't know how to write a check, don't know how to go get a driver's license. They don't know anything. And they're always welcome to come back here for help, financial help, or those kinds of things. And uh, most, there's a, uh, the board of this place is made up of CEOs, bank presidents, and things like that, all guys who walked out here sober one day. And now they're all very successful, and they come back to give their time. It's just one of the greatest places. What are some other ways it's evolved over the years since you've been involved in it, besides the computers and well, this? Well, you know, oh, well, uh, the original place uh, was over on... Uh, Oh, just a few blocks from here, it had been hit by, by a, the earthquake, and it had been there since the, the 20s when this place opened. They're coming up a 100-year anniversary, and it was kind of dilapidated. So we're so proud of this place. Three floors, every, we've got childcare, we've got doctors, everything. And it's be, really become a hub for, for people who want to uh, get back on their feet. What I've noticed over the years, there used to just be a lot of old guys like me <laughs> <laughs> stand on the street. Today it's families, whole families lined up down that street, veterans who are in trouble. So the crowd is getting not only bigger, but it's, the whole complexion of it has changed completely. And throughout your volunteering here over the past 15 years, have, have the methods of teaching the self-sufficiency changed? Because well, they've improved. With families as opposed to individuals? That's right. We have child care. And also there are, we have a uh, uh, apartments in Inglewood and, and various places for women with children, uh, particularly abused women. And we, we put them up. So the, the uh, tab's pretty heavy every year. We depend on a lot from grants and, of course, uh, a lot of uh, personal donations. <laughs> I thought I'd throw that in. <laughs> yeah, I started serving and ended up the maitre d'. I started greeting people at the door, and then I began passing out candy to the kids. And now my job is just... <laughs> run around and table hop and, and talk to people. I just love it. You have a career to fall back on if the show business thing doesn't work That's out, right. be a major day. I sing and dance here, <laughs> a little of everything. You were mentioning earlier that the uh, Midnight Mission's been open. It'll be 100 years in 2014. Yeah, right? I think that's probably right. It's almost as old as I am. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you have to say about the longevity of that, a century of that kind of help in this community? Well, it, uh, you know, it's gotten worse to, to some extent. It seems like the government really can't handle it. And, uh, every, I mean, it's really broken in Washington. So this kind of help where we're helping each other is much more important. And, of course, it's gotten worse. As I said, there are families out there living in their cars. Yeah. I, I walked through the courtyard earlier this morning, and, and all the volunteers are so joyful and happy oh, and outgoing it, it it's it, it's a cliche that you hear but you get you give but you get a lot oh so much back, back. so much back it gets you out of that you know little kingdom you rule inside your skull <laughs> have you met some interesting volunteers that you can uh, talk about uh, uh one uh, i have friends of volunteer on days like this they have to do it in shifts we have hundreds of volunteers so each one gets to come in and serve for maybe an hour because everybody wants to help. The rest of the year is when we need volunteers. <laughs> Why did you get involved in the first place, you personally? Well, I had a, a problem with uh, old Jack Daniels myself for a while, and uh, that's what got me down here originally, because some of my fellow ex-alcoholics 
got me down, and I just became, fell in love with it and became involved. I was the fundraising chairman for this, for this building. Wow. Uh, I had to go out and beg people for money, and we were so proud of it. What do you think it is about the system that they teach here of self-sufficiency that maybe is superior to or different from? Well, most problems? of the other places really don't educate at all. And we do. We educate. We uh, we have a whole computer room up there. You wouldn't believe it. And we teach them how to how to do the basic you know computer skills that that they need. Uh, and uh, we have health care too. We get people to take care of their teeth. <laughs> and to come and watch the graduating class is so exciting. These guys are all dressed up and you know full of life and ready to get out there. So that's what this place is really about, putting people back in society. For people that are watching this, what advice would you give for them to get involved? How, what's the first step for volunteers to get involved? Obviously, today is a busy day, but you were talking about... Yeah, the rest things. of the year, we, we could use a little more help. The best way to get involved is, is to write a check. <laughs> because the, uh, it is expensive keeping this place going. And uh, it gets a little harder. A lot of the, the uh, big foundations have cut back but uh, we're having to go out and beg now. What does the Midnight Mission represent for the people here in, in Los Angeles and the community? Well, we have probably the biggest homeless population of any city, you know, by percentage, uh, even of Chicago and New York. I think we have the largest percentage. So uh, we've got a big job on our hands, and I don't think there's anybody else doing it, really a, a private you know, institution that's doing what we're doing here. So it's, I think it's very important. And the job's getting bigger and bigger. It just, I'll tell you, you, go out and look at those families standing in the street. And, you know, how can this happen in this country? Do people work, you know, from paycheck to paycheck, and uh, they lose a job, miss a payment, they're in the street. It happens so fast, and a lot of the veterans are in such trouble. And I, w I was told there's something like 400,000 veterans right now waiting for assistance from the government that hasn't come yet. Things have really ground to a halt. So uh, us helping each other has gotten more important. Well, yeah, as the government has kind of abdicated that responsibility, well, it it's, seems it's great to see individual citizens picking up the side. Yeah, that's the only thing that can happen. Everybody's going to have to start helping everybody else. We're going to go way past tolerance and, and start with some love. Well, this is the day when we all have to join together, forget our differences, and start helping one another. It was really a uh, very enlightening and empowering day last Thanksgiving. And uh, our big thanks to Dick Van Dyke for taking the time out to talk with us. And, and uh, his beautiful wife, Arlene. Yes. Who was on studs? <laughs> I walked into the room where we were doing this interview and Arlene came up to me, Dick's wife, and said, do you remember me? And usually when someone says that to me, it's because they were on studs. And I said, you couldn't possibly have been. Oh, yes. And I had a great time. <laughs> she was delighted. Let's start with Brown. I came out of Second City in, in uh, Santa Monica here. And you came out of the Groundlings. Why did you... Why did you want to go to the Groundlings? What drew you to improv comedy when you were just getting started? Well, it's it was weird because I, I basically sort of... I mean, I grew up in L.A. So I knew... The Groundlings was what I knew growing sure. up. And then I started doing improv in college. Um, I went to uh, Yale University and I had a friend who was from Chicago. And he brought the Herald. You know, he had studied with yes. Del Close 
And he brought that to, co- to our college, and we started a group. And we actually spent a summer in Chicago, um, which I, that's a city that I really, really did. Isn't it great? I love it. It's, it's, it's a real city like New York, but it's got the warmth and the openness of, a West, of the West. You know, and it's, to me, it's, it's, it's the best of both. That's what I always say. Yenny's a huge New York fan. And I, I mean, I grew up in Chicago, so I understand that I'm biased. But I totally agree with you. See, here's another yeah. person, baby. He's, he's from here. He's from L.A. And he, he notices people in Chicago are nicer. Yes. Oh, absolutely. New Yorkers are nice. New Yorkers, New Yorkers are stick not a knife nice. in the back of your head and fuck your corpse. Oh. That's what New Yorkers do. <laughs> New York is the center of the world. If you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. But see, actually, what you just said is the essence. It's not that New Yorkers aren't nice. There are some nice New Yorkers, and New Yorkers can be nice. New Yorkers can be, you know, it's it's not all Kitty Genovese, but (laughs) there are, being in New York, a a Manhattanite in particular, and environs, requires a certain mental state. And it is one where you not only believe that New York is the center of the universe, but that everything about New York is the best. Yes. It is, though. It isn't. It is. Oh, my God. <laughs> you don't New see York the pizza's sun better than Chicago unless pizza. you have a billion dollars. Exactly. If you're a bazillionaire, anywhere is great, and New York is great, too. But you have to be, I always feel like I have to be on guard 24-7 in New York. And I don't feel that way in Chicago. Well, although I think New York, in terms of, like, the danger it's definitely subsided from what sure. it was, you know, in the eighties and nineties. Um, but no, it's this this idea that, yeah, I I pay six thousand dollars for two hundred and fifty square feet in New York City. It's like no, 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 that's ridiculous. Like people in San Francisco who also have like insane, you know, price per square foot, they know it's wrong. Right. You, you yeah, can't New tell a New no Yorker that that's wrong. All right, well, baby, two to one, you're outvoted. So we're talking about <laughs> Phil's comedy. But let me, here, infancy. let me segue, Mark. That that whole like mental state, like it requires a mental state to live in Manhattan. Comic cons are the same way. There is a completely different mindset at work. You know, when you go there, people are dressed up in costumes, and here's the weird thing: like from an outsider, you're like, oh, that's a great costume, and that's a crappy costume. But when you're there. They don't draw those lines. It's like, you are one of us. And it wasn't it, very inclusive. I, yes. I got the feeling that it's where all the nerds who are shunned and made fun of... Turn uh, into geeks, and now geeks is a good but thing. But it's a very inclusive, um, happy place. So I, I see, much. you know, I, that, that I liked about it. Yeah, where else can you go that you can walk around and feel like you're inside a completely different world. You're walking around, you're seeing unicorns. Riddick, you're seeing that guy, uh, bad, Breaking Bad. Oh, yeah, yeah, Walter White up next to Captain America's. Uh, Captain America's? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting because San Diego Comic-Con has sort of become this thing unto itself. But at the same time, as it has grown and exploded and become basically the E3 of popular culture... (sighs) There have been these other Comic-Cons popping up all over the country, all over the world. And they they are more of a type than Comic-Con. Comic-Con is its own thing. But when you go to these other conventions, it's more of what Comic-Con used to be, which is this celebration of enthusiasm. Like, I'm really into this thing. Really? That's amazing. Yeah, and no one judges. 
Yeah. Because everybody's and, into the same thing. It's all, you know, great sci-fi stuff and vampires. And that's the one place where you can find everything about that world. Okay. Yeah. And it's funny because Patton Oswalt used to, uh, wrote, a, wrote a thing about how the nature of being a, a nerd or a geek about something uh -huh. has completely changed with the advent of the internet. Like, it used to be if you were into, you know, Professor Longhair, you know. Who I love. Right. Or if you were into Lord of the Rings, it required effort to find, to find that material and to find out about that material. You had to, you know, get a fanzine or, you know, dig it up or go through, you know, a record store. Now you just go online and go, Professor Longhair, oh, either it's on YouTube or you can download the things. You can become an expert off Wikipedia instantly. It's like, right. oh, let me find out about this Game of Thrones. Okay, I'm up to season three. Let's get into it. And you find that there's a community of people like you. You know, when there's six yes. billion people on the planet, regardless of what it is, there's going to be some other people interested in the same weird shit that you're into. Yeah, because there's not many people around our house that can discuss sci-fi uh, theories with me. I can discuss it. <laughs> uh, you can't discuss Professor Longhair. No, you make Longhair. fun of it. You make fun of it. You make fun when I'm watching Fringe or when I'm watching Being Human and my Let's vampires. Let's be honest, baby. And... Some of the stuff you watch is crap. I'm, I'm a huge fan of the old Star Trek, the you know William Shatner Star Trek. That's a Speaking great show. Of crap. For, for, right. But some of these, some of the admit it, baby. Some oh my of the, god, I'm obsessed mm. with Sherlock. Ooh. Obsessed. I've never seen it, but I've heard it's it's amazing. Now, it's do you watch phenomenal. Downton Abbey as well? I have. I started watching it. Um, but I want to watch them all at the same time, so I'm waiting for like a really long weekend. Right, right. <laughs> um, but Sherlock is just absolutely incredible. And I watch Being Human because the vampire is really sexy. There we go. <laughs> Are you a True Blood fan? I am. Um, or, did you, or did True Blood lose you at some point? They lost me in season two. They gained back. Uh, they, they got me back in season three. Okay, okay. Yeah, well, that's a, it's so funny how... What used to be these fringe things are now so mainstream, like vampires. Vampires, like from Bella Lugosi, it was like, mm -hmm. okay, people know about it, but it's not really a thing. Now, yeah, and it was really difficult to find people to talk about or to right? find books to read. I remember I was into vampires for the longest, and there were never TV shows about vampires. There was um, the, the, the Dark Black Shadows. Dark Shadows was the right. only one. Mm -hmm. That was did, it. Did you, did you read the, the Anne Rice stuff? I did. I read some of them. She, I'd rather watch it because, mm -hmm. but I, I mean, I, I had so many vampire books and um, there was nothing, nowhere to find them. People thought it was stupid. <laughs> I couldn't talk to anybody about vampires because they would look at me weird. Right, right. Because um, they're not like, real. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's, a wor it's a different world. It's, it's escapism to vampire world. It is. So is cartoons. Yes. Which is yeah. uh, one of the many reasons Phil is hilariously famous. Well, and it's funny because like the Comic Con thing for me is it's part of it is I've done a lot of like superhero oriented cartoons. Is that what people recognize you most for? Well, I mean, it's when people how I, come up to you, what do you hear the most? Um, you know what? It depends on who it is. Um, at a at a comic book convention, it will be more often than not Futurama because mm -hmm. mm. Futurama hits a, a real sweet spot in, as far as fandom because it's cartoons and it's science fiction and it's been on for a decade exactly and that's another part of it like just having been around as long as i have like after a while because this is this is what i was going to say about the you were talking about the crappy star trek there's the 12 year old vision 
You know, like when you see something at age 12, when you're at that really impressionable stage, Good point. it doesn't matter whether it's quality. Mm -hmm. If it like pulls those strings in you, like, you know, Yinny, there was probably at some point early in your life, a vampire thing that just made you go, oh. Yeah, there's been a few. You know? <laughs> and, and, and from that point on, those things resonate with you. And Mark, yeah, also, you. I think it, to go to hammer the Star Trek point even more, though the, the special effects were in our eyes today, Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, not particularly great. The 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 underpinnings of the story and the the characters and the the machinations of all the psychology and and the the big picture that Gene Roddenberry was writing too, right. I, I think was unique in the '60s, far ahead of its time. And I think yeah. that's the reason that that whole universe has sustained because it's it 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 aspires to the best of humanity as opposed to the worst. Right. But it also only lasted three seasons True. and was never really a hit. Right, and Honey Boo Boo has been on three years and it makes oh, millions yeah. of dollars. Ah! Welcome to America.